It's the most wonderful time of the year. For wonks, that is. The federal government will release their May budget, but with economic recovery high on the agenda in the wake of COVID-19, you might be wondering where the government will be spending big or slashing costs. Never fear, we've got you covered. I'm Kat Clay, Head of Digital Communications, and here with me today to peer into the crystal ball of budget predictions is none other than Grattan's CEO and one of Australia's leading economists, Danielle Wood. Welcome, Danny. Thanks for having me, Kat. Danny, you've been to several budget lockups and you're hopefully going to this year's one, but I'm very curious what actually happens on budget night. Uh, that's a great question. Given a lot of journalists are expected to be able to talk about the budget straight after the Treasurer delivers his speech at 7.30, the government very kindly gives them a bit of a head start. Journalists and some other advisors, such as myself, are locked up in a room with the budget papers from about 1.30 in the afternoon. And the, the best way of thinking about it is like a giant exam. <laughs> You've got people, you know, sort of pouring through the budget documents, which run to hundreds and hundreds of pages, uh, trying to you know, pull out the story, trying to find the little kernel, something the government might have tried to hide <laughs> somewhere deep in there and really sort of pull out what the narrative of the budget is and what it means for Australia. I like the idea of searching through paperwork for a little kernel that you can latch onto and talk about. It sounds very dramatic in a very nerdy way. <laughs> yes, it's certainly nerd heaven, <laughs> like, like a uni exam, but with uh, um, you know, and even uh, more pressure at the end of it. The federal government has implemented some huge economic measures during COVID-19 to maintain jobs and businesses. What kind of fiscal strategy should the government be implementing coming out of COVID-19? Look, I think that question of the fiscal strategy really will be the defining issue of this budget. And we've already had a very strong signal from the Treasurer last week. He has really said that the fiscal strategy is changing. So in the last budget, they said we're going to use fiscal policy to drive unemployment down until it was comfortably below 6%. Now he's signaled that he actually wants it to be lower than it was pre-COVID. That means below 5%. So really, you know, that strategy is not to move to actively repair the budget until we have unemployment with a four in front of it. And, you know, that's pretty extraordinary. We, we haven't been there that many times in, in recent decades. Why is that important? Well, it's a signal really that the government doesn't want to go back to the pre-COVID economy. So if we take our minds back to, to 2019, we hadn't seen wages growth for the best part of five or six years. We had weak consumption. Business investment was weak. We were in what some economists call secular stagnation, where the economy sort of seems trapped in this kind of below-par environment. And a big part of that is that you know we had unemployment, underemployment. We hadn't hit the point of full employment. So the government's really saying that they want to use the budget, use fiscal policy to try and create jobs, to push unemployment down, really to the point where we see wages growing again. And, you know, I describe it as a sort of a jumpstart the economy strategy. You hope if you sort of give that push, wages growth ignites, and then really the kind of private sector recovery really kicks in and full and takes over. So it almost sounds like some sort of Star Wars maneuver where you cut out the engines, fall for a bit, and then kick into gear a few years later. Yeah, and that's that's really the plan. And this is sort of a really sort of cutting edge macroeconomic debate. Um, we can see around the world that this is the approach being adopted uh, very explicitly in the US. You know, they've just put in place a $1.9 trillion plan. They're looking at another more than $2 trillion in a recovery plan. And they've been very explicit that the goal of that is to, to get unemployment with a three in front of it. So, you know, this 
is the strategy that's being adopted in a number of places in the world. And that's because the macro environment has changed. Um, you know, Traditionally, we've relied on monetary policy to, to do the heavy lifting and to smooth out business cycles. That's largely out of puff at the moment when, when you've got official interest rates at, at 0.1%. So fiscal policy is the main game in town now. And you know, the good news is that it's less costly to use fiscal policy at the moment because the cost of borrowing is so low. So there's just a much stronger business case for a whole lot of investments. And even if you do make a big push, it's going to be much more manageable to um, handle that that increased debt on the other side. I just want to ask you too, because that touches on a question we often get in the media, which is why is it a good time to be spending all that money? Shouldn't we be tightening our belts? Well, really, it's around that macroeconomic picture. So it is about actually trying to generate more jobs and push unemployment down to the point where we have wages growth again. Uh, and as I said, you know, with borrowing rates at record lows, you know, the debt that comes out of this will be manageable. We had a, you know, really important report, I think, from the Parliamentary Budget Office uh, a week or so ago that was actually, you know, looking at those questions of debt sustainability on the other side of COVID. And what that showed is, you know, under a whole range of scenarios, they looked at, you know, different possible outcomes for economic growth, for the interest rate we pay on our debt, uh, and for the budget balance. And almost under any scenario they could come up with, debt was going to stabilise and start to fall as a share of GDP over coming decades. So, you know, that really showed that we don't have big concerns at this point around the sustainability of, of the debt that the government's taken on. So, Danny, I want to turn now to some of the areas that have been strategically leaked. So let's talk about the things that we do know about. The three main things we've heard about so far are childcare, aged care, and income tax. Yes, that's right. And, you know, we, we do see a bit of this government rather than sort of holding everything back for budget night, wanting to put a little bit on the record in advance and get a bit more attention for proposals. Um, so we were really delighted to see a proposal on childcare. And we've certainly been talking for a long time about the importance of trying to reduce those really high out-of-pocket costs for childcare to help families and, and, you know, as an economic reform to provide a financial incentive for women who would like to, to work more when they have young children. The government didn't go as far as we would have liked. So in terms of the sort of scale of the policy, they're putting on the table 1.7 billion over three years. So certainly not the, the sort of the total spend that, that we had recommended, but it is quite well targeted for a spend of that size. So it's really about reducing those out-of-pocket costs by increasing the subsidy for people that have two or more children in long daycare or family daycare. So the really expensive care before your child goes to school. When you've got multiple children in there, um, that's when those out-of-pockets really do rack up. And this is trying to sort of help offset some of that cost in those really high cost years. So we think it will make a difference. Uh, it will certainly help families in that situation. And we think it will also sharpen workforce incentives so that second earners who are, who are still mainly women um, will receive a greater financial benefit if they they want to go, say, from three to four or four to five days a week. They at least won't be working for free anymore. Now, before we get on to aged care and income tax, I do want to ask you about the government's need to do things for women in this budget because, I mean, rightly so, they've been hammered for, you know, the representation of women both in parliament and also the treatment of women in, in the parliamentary space. I suspect a lot of issues sort of rolled into one around this sort of this women's space. So we were critical of the last budget in that it was quite low-key in the, the nature of the response. So we've written a lot and we did a, a report about the way in which COVID had particularly hit women hard. When we looked at the measures in the first budget, 
they were very skewed, particularly the, the sector-specific supports towards male-dominated sectors. We had expected to see more for some of the service industries that were really hard hit. So we were sort of critical on, on gender grounds as were any number of other economists. And then I think, as you say, there were sort of other uh, issues around women that have hit in the intervening period. All of that has sort of put more pressure on the government to, to put a more female-friendly lens on this budget, and I think that's very welcome. So I think the childcare package is part of that, but there's obviously many other important elements that we would like to see. Um, you know, a lot of talk about need for more supports for family violence and, and women's safety, and, you know, I certainly hope that we will see more more of a commitment in that space in the budget. The other area that we're hearing more about is women's economic security and retirement. So I think there probably will be some measures around women's superannuation. So things like paying super on paid parental leave and removing at the moment, there's a cap for employers making super contributions of $450 a month. So if someone earns less than that, they don't have to pay super. That impacts everyone, not just women, but it is mainly women that are in that group of, of earning such a low amount. So if they abolish that, that, that will help women's super balances. They are smallish measures, but they would make some difference. If you really wanted to tackle women's economic security and retirement, the place to go would be rent assistance. The people that really do struggle with poverty are people that are on the age pension and don't own their own home. And that's because that rent assistance payment hasn't kept up with the cost of housing over time. So the single biggest measure, if you wanted to do something about um, old age poverty, which particularly impacts women, not only, but particularly, would be to, to boost rent assistance. I'm not expecting we'll see any move on that front in the budget, but that would certainly be the most direct policy response. And certainly if you'd like to hear more about that particular issue um, in our last podcast, we did talk in depth about what we could do for women in terms of childcare and superannuation. Now, I want to talk to you about aged care because, I mean, the government has announced a, a $10 billion over four-year package for aged care, but we recently released a report which says that's not enough and we should be funding aged care to the tune of $10 billion every year. Tell us your thoughts on that. Well, that's right. So, I mean, Grattan's work, which sort of built off some of the work in the Royal Commission and um, start to synthesise some of the conflicting recommendations in the Commission, really showed that if you wanted to embrace the Commission's recommendations in full, it was a you know, very ambitious reform that was put forward by the Royal Commission, so a move to a rights-based model of care rather than a, a rationed model of care. It would be about trying to get rid of the waiting list for home care packages. It's about reforming residential care, including staff pay, um, staff numbers and training. That would cost about $10 billion a year. So that you know, it it's, would be a very sizable investment, reflecting the fact, I think, that we've underinvested in this area for a long time with some pretty dreadful um, outcomes, as we saw during the Royal Commission. And I know we've had a number of Grattan staff talking about on this podcast. If the government goes for $10 billion over four years, clearly that will help. They've signaled that they do want to reduce that home care waiting list, for example, but it's not going to be the sort of transformative structural reform that was recommended by the Commission. The last thing I want to ask you about there is one that I know the least about, which is income tax. Now we hear this and we kind of go, oh, am I going to pay more tax or am I going to pay less? And is that more money in my pocket really? But tell us the ins and outs here of this particular issue with the budget. Okay. So this is a complicated one. People may remember before the last election, the government had announced a three-stage tax package. Stage one 
was introducing a, a tax offset, which is called the low and middle income earner tax offset that we dubbed the Lamington. Stage two was some, some tax cuts in the sort of middle brackets. And stage three is the kind of really big tax cuts, which include pulling out a tax bracket that kind of largely benefit high income earners. Those ones aren't coming into effect until 2024, 25. The Lamington, the lower middle income tax offset was due to come out when stage two came into effect. And largely stage two was going to replace those tax cuts for, for low and middle income earners. In the last budget, the government brought forward the stage two cuts, but they decided actually to leave that low and middle income earner tax offset in place. So effectively, they were giving bigger cuts um, for low and middle income earners, and they did that um, in the name of stimulus. So we were obviously at quite an early stage of the the recovery after the lockdowns, uh, and they thought that that would be good stimulus, which I think was the right call. The difficulty is now that offset was only meant to be temporary. But if they remove it, in effect, low and middle income earners pay more tax because they're losing the benefit of the offset sitting on top of those additional tax cuts. That's politically difficult, particularly given this is likely to be a pre-election budget. Um, The optics of that aren't good. Uh, And so the signal is the government will actually keep that in place for another year. So it's effectively kind of kicking the can down the road on that problem of you know, at some point that offset probably has to go. It's pretty complicated, but, you know, they don't want to have those optics of increasing taxes on, on low and middle income earners. So people earning under $90,000 a year in the last budget before an election. So it is horrendously complicated, um, you know, probably the best <laughs> argument for, for getting rid of it and perhaps delivering tax relief in a, a more simple way through the, the normal tax scales. But there we are. So I, I suspect, you know, that will be one of the tax announcements that we see on the night. So I do love income tax when it's explained by food items. I think that makes it a lot easier to understand for me. Another year I, of lamingtons for all. <laughs> lamingtons for I can. I'm trying to calculate now how many lamingtons I could buy with a tax cut like that. Anyway, that's for another time. But it does touch on an issue that I think is really important coming into this budget and with the federal election likely coming up in 2022. Are there any other areas where the government will be treading carefully? Look, I think those are probably the main ones. I think really in terms of the politics of this budget, I think they need to be seen to do something for, for women. And as I said, I think the childcare announcement is a step towards that. I think there is, you know, clear demands for and important reforms to be made in service areas. So we've talked about childcare, we've talked about aged care, actually mental health is the other one. The government is yet to respond to the Productivity Commission report, which looked in depth at the mental health system and what needed to change. And, you know, if they were to implement the commission's recommendations in full, that's probably another $2.4 billion of, of spending on mental health. And that seems to be particularly an acute need at the moment with growing rates of demand for services coming after COVID. So I think, you know, those areas of social spending are really going to be the ones that people are looking to see how much the government is willing to invest. And as I said in my piece in the AFR this morning, you know, in a way in this budget, the economics and politics are aligned. So economists, you know, Treasury and others quite rightly are saying to the government, you should prioritise jobs over budget repair. So that does give the government, you know, some leeway to spend more uh, and spend more in ways that create jobs. These types of social spending, things like aged care and childcare are job creating. There's no doubt about that. But the question is how far they would go. They're obviously permanent spends. So once you lock it in, you're locking it in forevermore. My view is they they probably won't go the big bang reforms. And that's because they've got an eye to stage two of their fiscal strategy, which is around 
stabilising and reducing debt as a share of GDP. And they still want to do that while keeping taxes as a share of the economy at 23.9%. So they're reluctant to do those kind of major social reforms that some people have been calling for. So I think they'll do more, but probably not as much as many people had hoped. Thanks, Danny. Now, the last thing I want to ask you, I mean, in a dream world, what are the top three things you'd like to see happen in this budget? Look, I would like to see the government be bolder on those areas that I've just talked about. You know, childcare, we advocated, you know, what I think would have been a really transformative change, spending $5 billion would significantly have brought down disincentives for people with children to work, would have allowed a lot more children to, to access early learning and care and, you know, freed up parents to, to take on more work if they wanted to. So I think that would have been a kind of a major centrepiece economic reform. Government has moved, but not that far. Ditto aged care. I mean, Grattan has done a huge amount of work on just why it is that that large scale structural transformation of the sector is needed. And ultimately, this is about how we we treat and care for older Australians. And I, you know, I would like to see that major investment made. So I think, you know, those those are two areas where I would like to see a big investment. I suspect realistically the only way that we would get those changes is if the government said that they weren't going to go ahead with the, the stage three tax cuts in 2024-25. Um, so that's really the, the tension at the heart of this budget is that you can't deliver those major social transformations unless you've shored up the tax base in the long run. But I don't think any of that stuff will be on the table in in the form that we've called for. That's all right, Danny. We can only live in hope. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And I really appreciate your excellent insights into the upcoming budget. We will certainly talk more about it after the budget. And if you're interested in following our budget coverage, do go to our website next week at grattan.edu.au. I'm sure we'll have a lot of op-eds and a lot of pieces up about what the budget means for you. You can also follow us on social media at GrattanInst on Twitter and Grattan Institute on all other social media platforms, and we'll certainly be posting our budget coverage there. As always, take care and thanks so much for listening.